He's got a rocket with his name on it. Hello, guys. Welcome back to Let's Pod This. Hope you guys have been having a great week. We're back here in Upper Room Studios. Uh, Andy is not with us this week, so it's me, Scott Melson, one of your regular hosts. But I do have a guest with me this week. We have the Honorable Grant Herms from Honorable. News 9. Honorable. I've never been called Honorable before. That's so nice of you. Thanks for having me on. I'm a fan of what you guys do. I love the podcast. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to step into Andy's shoes here, but we'll give it a shot. Man, we're excited to have you on. Uh, excited that you were available and interested and willing willing to step to the plate. Well, we'll see how it goes. I could strike out. It could be a home run. I have no idea. No, we'll I, find out. I think it's be good. Should we? Uh, it's been you know it's been pretty active couple of weeks in the legislature. We're now what like two weeks status post teacher walkout. So things have kind of been returning to normal, which for this time of year means that there's been a flurry of legislative activity right and they want to end by next week and so this is what we see every year that they try to cram all this stuff into the last little bit because they've been doing other things for the first part of session yeah which has actually been like three sessions four yeah, sessions right, right. <laughs> whatever we're, we're, we're now officially down to one session which is nice we're in our regular session and you're right they're saying that they're gonna signy die by the possibly may 4th like the end of next week which you know, the last time that happened was 2015. They say they're going to do it every year. Um, big difference this year. The education budget's already done. Um, that's usually a big sticking point. Um, so now they just have the general appropriations bill um, and then finish up some business and that's, that's, they'll be done for the year. We'll see. I'm expecting some fireworks with the, the GA bill coming up later this week and into next week. Uh, it's through the Senate. And I, I know we're going to get this later. I don't want to jump ahead here. Um, but... It, the House tends to be a little more volatile with these kind of things. So we'll see if they can hit their date. I think they're just fatigued. I, like uh, the rest of us, I, I think they're just tired. I totally agree. You know, I've, I was text, texting with some people today, and, you know, I love this stuff. I love to watch it. It's like my hobby. This is, this is what I do in my free time, and I'm ready for it to be over. Like, I'm so, I'm so tired of trying to, you know, figure out um, – figure out what they're going to do next, figure out why they're doing what they're doing. It's really, um, yeah. We'll get like two weeks of vacation from this and then it'll be campaign season. Which I almost feel like at this point, campaign season would be like a little bit rejuvenating. A little. You know? I think so. Like, cause it's just like, it's different. Yeah. Change of pace. It's just something, something new. Well, you know, we're, uh, we're, we're getting a little bit of ahead, a little bit ahead of ourselves. Um, you know, we've had so much going on with the teacher walkout. We've kind of, really just dealt with that for our last two to three episodes. Um, trying to get back to kind of our, our typical format today. And we're going to start out with a news roundup for you. Um, several things to talk about. Um, I, first thing I had on my list this week um, was the GOP gubernatorial candidate forum. This was hosted by the Oklahoman took place on Monday of this week. Um, our friends over at Oklahoma watch have a nice piece um, kind of with some high points, that four takeaway points, um, talking about the candidate forum. Uh, Grant, did you have any thoughts? Um, I mean, first off, we, we should lay, kind of lay out the land here a little bit. The most recent poll has uh, Lieutenant Governor Todd Lamb and Kevin Stitt tied at 19%, and then Mayor Mick Cornett, or former Mayor Mick Cornett now, um, is at 17%. And it's really early still, so those polls are kind of 
a little a little out from where they should be. But those are the three front runners at this point. I mean, going through the list, the they talked about abortion. They talked about this new, I guess not the new, the, the teacher pay plan, which was interesting. Um, First of all, you had a split, a real clear split. Uh, State Auditor Gary Jones, who's also in the running for this, who has not been a, a friend to some of the folks in the legislature this year. He's been kind of uh, a, a point of derision for a few folks up there. He supported the teacher pay plan. He called it kind of his plan. He said it was his idea. People can quibble about whether or not that's the case. Uh, Mick Cornette gave support for the plan, and then a little tepid other response Todd Lamb, uh, Stitt, and Garrett Richardson, and then Dan Fisher all wanted to do something different. They opposed the plan and would rather see reforms in the kind that former Senator Tom Coburn is talking about. We'll get to that later, I think. He comes, yeah. to, he comes into play right. a couple times this week. <laughs> He's been an, uh, a, not a new face, but an, an old face in a new way here in Oklahoma politics. Making his triumphant return. Indeed, indeed. Um, Depending on who you talk to. Yeah, right. You know, I think it's interesting. I, you know, one of the things that was striking about the teacher walkout and that whole discussion is no matter what side of the aisle you tend to live on, for the most part, there was pretty widespread agreement that this was a problem, right? Like the education funding and teacher pay specifically was something that needed to be dealt with. Um, and most people again, on both sides of the aisle, as evidenced by the 76% uh, that it got in both houses, seem to think that revenue needed to be a part of that discussion. But here you have every candidate for the Republican gubernatorial nomination saying that, no, revenue is not the issue. Minus Gary Jones. Minus Gary Jones and Mick Cornette. Yes. Um, Every candidate but, but those two saying, no, revenue was not an issue. We could just have enacted all these government reforms and found $500 million. And Cornette kind of had an interesting answer, which he's given before when people have asked about this, it, it, in the vein that, like, he supports the plan, but had he been governor, we never would have been here in the first place, which is fun campaign speak, but is a, n- not the best answer ever in a, a forum like that. Yeah, right. It's easy to say that you would have done better when it wasn't your job. Right, right. So that's our first article this week. Next up um, is an article from Nondoc. This was something that I think was really interesting, um, particularly given some legislative action that took place yesterday in the House of Representatives. This is a piece talking about the difference between two competing uh, proposals to exact additional revenue from uh, Oklahoma's growing wind industry. You know, we've talked here on the pod, and I'll be I'll be brief. You guys know that <laughs> I can uh, I can go on about this at length. But um, two competing proposals: one to basically enact a gross production tax of sorts on wind industry and charge wind a tax for every megawatt hour of energy they produce. The other possibility was that was being discussed was to um, kind of go back and cap some refundable tax credits that wind has been, um, when I say taking advantage of, I don't mean in any kind of nefarious way, but just um, that they that that industry has been using for several years. Oh, and they've been promised that. Right. They're a part of 20-year contracts that, that these companies have signed to do wind energy and their business here in Oklahoma. Right. And so a lot of the concern from those companies and from the investors uh, had been that the state's going to go back on their word. Um, 
and this is something that just for the podcast because we haven't I haven't talked about this yeah. publicly yet, but I've seen emails. This from, is an exclusive. It's an exclusive. This is a let. This is a let's pod. This it is. exclusive. It is. My bosses are not going to be happy about that. Um, but it's it's a set of emails between Blackstone Financial Groups, an executive over there, and several members of the House leadership, and Blackstone saying, if you do this, if you take away these refundability, these tax credits, it's going to really color the way we look at future investment. And so what's been happening is that that the House leadership, specifically the people who voted uh, against oil and gas earlier this year, when it came to the, the, the other teacher pay bill, uh, they're trying to get back in the good graces of oil and gas. And to do that, they're trying to knock wind because oil and gas is just mad at anybody. But you've got real companies and real investors who can take their business to other states because Andy said it before, I think, the wind blows anywhere. They can do it in Denmark, they can do it in Kansas, wherever. The oil is in the ground here, and so they're really trying to, to do this split. But it's the emails that, that eventually I'm going to have to get around to reporting on here, because <laughs> I'm but one reporter, Scott. Uh, those emails are, are pretty telling about the kind of situation that we're facing here when we talk about wind. Yeah, well, and just uh, a point of just clarification, and Grant, you can let me know if I'm wrong. Um, Blackstone Capital and companies like them, they don't just invest in wind. I, I dare say that they actually invest in oil and gas. I think that they own 10% of Devon Energy. They do. I'm pretty sure that they own another company who buys a whole lot of Devon's gas and a lot of gas from Continental Resources as well. So the idea that um, you know we can just afford as a state to kind of tick these people off and it's not going to you know, tarnish our business reputation or that if it does tarnish our business reputation, it's just the wind industry. So who cares? Um, I think is a little misguided. I mean, would you think that's, is that accurate? I think that's, that's about right. Um, it, it's just, they, they really are the, the folks that, that get a lot of their money and a lot of their support. And uh, frankly, a lot of what they, they politically believe is the right direction for the state that aligns with oil and gas are really frightened right now. It's been a contentious year. It's been a contentious four sessions that we've had. It's it's a midterm election year, uh, which demographics have been shifting. We can talk about that later if you want to. Um, and so they're nervous about what's going to happen in November, and part of that includes what's happening from oil and gas. I mean, the front page of OIPA's letter to its members was a picture of the House like board. Who, yeah, who yeah I saw what. that. It, it, that was crazy, and that was a clear message to folks who voted not in the interest of oil and gas producers that we're coming for you. Which, you know, to me, and this is getting a little bit off track, but I think it's yeah. still worth saying, you know, I think that this this idea this idea that raising the gross production tax from 2% to 5% is, you know, like not in their interest. I mean, I see that, and I understand the argument from oil and gas, but I also... This is like, to me, this is like a not seeing the forest for the trees kind of situation, or it's like not thinking long term. Yes, I get it that paying 7% is more than paying 5 and paying 5 is more than paying 2 I understand that this costs you money. But can you imagine how voters, I mean, this is theoretical, how do you think voters would be feeling about the oil and gas industry in November if instead of fighting tooth and nail to avoid any increase in the gross production tax for the last 15 months... If oil and gas, as an industry, had come to the plate and said, hey, you know what? Like, yeah, we're not excited about paying more in taxes. We don't want money taken out of our pocket. But we also, our employees live in Oklahoma, right? 
our some of our shareholders live in Oklahoma. Our in some cases our executives live in Oklahoma. Like Oklahoma has been an incredibly friendly business environment to the state for decades. Right now we're paying the lowest gross production tax in the country. We're not advocating that the legislature raise the tax, but if the legislature believes that raising the tax from two percent to you know, to five, six, seven, whatever the number is, if the legislature believes that that's what's best for Oklahoma, we're not going to actively fight that. Sure. Do you they, see what I'm saying? Like, uh, yeah, I understand what you're saying. I <laughs> they wouldn't do that, and they won't do that. I I I know I know uh, they I, wouldn't. And I, I understand it's hypothetical. I don't know why? But it's just like they're freaking out now about what. You know what I mean? Like, what's going to happen at the ballot box? Or you you could have just engendered yourself and, like, give, gotten yourself a lot of goodwill in the state. You know what I mean? Like Right. And, and really, uh, once you get outside certain bubbles, they do have a lot of goodwill already. And what they have to say is that, like, if we increase taxes, it's going to hurt jobs for our industry. And that scares a lot of people who, who aren't in the legislature but still bank on, on oil and gas. So... It's a it's a rock and a hard place. I don't envy the position of a lot of the mostly Republican leadership up at the Capitol right now when they're facing this kind of choice. Sure. I really don't. Sure. And to that, I would say, if you don't want to make hard choices, don't run for office. That's fair. That is fair. <laughs> that is very fair. Tough but fair. Scott <laughs> you know Madison. what I mean? Like nobody, nobody. Um, uh, I mean, you signed up for it, right? Like that's. That's what they. That's what you. they did. That's what, I mean, I did not. Right, I did yeah. not. I'm. Although you're a reporter who has, I think, um, arguably at, at least as hard, maybe sometimes a harder job. Um. <laughs> I don't. I don't know about that. We can talk about the job later. Just it's just an industry full of large, fragile egos. That's yeah. that's just all I'll say. I think that's you know I think that's <laughs> that's that's true for many of us. Um, all right. Next up, uh, this is you know our 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 long running segment, Pruitt Watch. Um, lots of developments in Pruitt Watch this week. The article we've got highlighted for you this week is from uh, the folks, the old gray lady, the New York Times, um, have a piece that really just like, oh no, I'm sorry. Do people That's, call it that? The gray lady? Yeah, yeah. dude. Oh, absolutely. I've never, yeah. I've never heard that. Uh, but I was wrong. I had looked at an article from the New York Times. The one that we ended up going with um, is an article from Politico uh, that talks about um, that uh, the Honorable Scott Pruitt, EPA administrator, has actually... Um, even started losing support from Republicans on Capitol Hill, um, up to and potentially including our own uh, Senator Jim Inhofe. Um, what Inhofe said, which which for those of you who haven't read the article yet, um, and you should definitely go read that article and read anything by Eric Lipton at the New York Times, who's been following Pruitt for several years here. Um, but Inhofe said what came out earlier this week about Pruitt's time as a legislator here in Oklahoma was troubling to him, that he Pruitt had... Purchased a house from some people that that there could have been a conflict of interest there. I did a story about the New York Times piece, a report about the report, earlier this week, um, and it, it those things matter. Um, the we can talk about to the hearings today. I did actually sleep today, which is a miracle. Uh, but if you want to read a really good piece about that, Justin Wingarder's piece in. The Oklahoman and on newsok.com is very good about the hearings today where Pruitt said that just because something hits the front page of a paper doesn't make it true. As a reporter, I'll disagree with him on that. As somebody who, who does journalism, I'll, I will disagree with that, that our, our vetting has to be pretty clear for it to make the front page especially, but also make it in those publications. But two, that it's important to look back on these things because past 
performance indicates future behavior, and it's especially in politics, it's a strong, <laughs> strong metric to look at somebody by. No, I I could not agree more, and that's been my. You know, that's been my reason, honestly, for harping on this as much as I have. It's not that, like, I, you know, know Scott Pruitt as a person and, you know, don't like him or think that he's a bad... You know, it's not It's not personal. It's just that when you look at the way... When you look at the way he is con- apparently conducting himself on this office and then you consider that it has been, you know, again, widely reported in a variety of outlets that he is strongly considering statewide office again in Oklahoma... You know, is this how we want a governor, a U.S. senator? Like, is this how, is this how we want our leaders to conduct themselves? Um, I, it's not for me. Um, and again, um, I think you just said a best past past behavior dictates future performance. Right, which is why in in the the converse of that, the Inhofe thing is so stark because Inhofe has been one of Pruitt's staunchest allies. They agree on lots of things, including climate change. And Inhofe and Pruitt are almost lockstep in in their belief that you know men, humankind does not uh, cause climate change. In your in their belief that because you can still make snowballs in Washington D.C. in winter, climate change must not be real. It was a great day for Oklahoma political theater, right? That that'll be like hundred years from now. That'll be like people fighting on the U.S. House floor in the 1800s. Right. That, will, that will be in the same yeah. like line of textbook yes. writing yes. for that. <laughs> well, we'll get that article up. I would also echo uh, what Grant said. If you did not get a chance to watch the hearings today, and let's be honest, most of you didn't because most of you are way cooler than I am, um, you should go back and watch the excerpts because I, I would submit that no matter where you fall on the political spectrum, they're entertaining. Let me add one else. thing here to this, too. Um, the... A lot of folks just read about Scott Pruitt, and if you haven't seen him in an interview setting before, um, it's interesting. I've interviewed Pruitt only once before. He's a difficult guy to get on camera and on the record, um, and it's there are people that you interview who are just, for whatever reason, shifty on camera. And I don't know if that's a, a, a machination of his personality or what it is or just being on camera in front of or in in the hot seat. I don't know. He's run for office long enough where it it'd be strange if he was just nervous all the time in public life like this. But you should watch him and his mannerisms cuz those things are also telling about the answers he's giving. 100%. All right. Next up um and this is so full disclosure um this next this next piece is less an article. It's it's not a news article. It's more in the vein of like a blog post or just kind of an informational piece of writing. It's from Dr. David Blatt, who is a co-founder and executive director of Oklahoma Policy Institute, which we reference regularly here on the pod. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, um, but it's just, it's, I think, something that as we are looking forward um, in uh, Oklahoma politics and with our budget for the next couple of years is something that we should be starting to think about now and asking our, our legislators about moving forward. And this is uh, regarding a bill called house bill 2763. This is a piece of legislation that was enacted in 2016 that creates something called the revenue stabilization fund. And essentially this creates a separate piece, a separate pool of money. This is different from the rainy day fund, which we've talked about here on the pod before. This creates a separate fund that is designed to serve as a buffer for state finances in years of uh, economic... Um, in the lean times. 
Yeah, in yeah. The lean years. Exactly. And so what this does is it looks at certain sources of revenue in in Oklahoma. So like um, the probably the biggest examples are the gross production taxes from oil and gas, corporate income taxes, other revenue sources that tend to fluctuate significantly. And every year it looks at those collections. And if the collections in a given year exceed a five-year rolling average of those collections in the past, okay, the difference is deposited in this revenue stabilization fund, all right? The reason that matters is because in a year like next year, when gross production taxes from oil and gas are projected to be substantially greater than the five-year rolling average, we could see up to $300 million deposited in this revenue stabilization fund, which sounds like a great idea, right? Like we've talked at length about why Oklahoma has not saved more money in the vein of states like Alaska or North Dakota. Um, but it's the same list you guys write a lot of. Yeah, every, every week. time it is. Yeah, yeah, every time. Yeah. However, next year, if we take that three hundred million and put it in the savings account, that is going to put in serious jeopardy all of these teacher pay raises and support staff, um, increased funding for classrooms, as well as funding for other core services. So. Uh, Dr. Blatt is arguing, and he doesn't take a position of, you know, they should do X, Y, and Z, but Dr. Blatt is arguing that this is something that needs to be revisited by the legislature, that the idea and intent behind the Revenue Stabilization Fund is really a, a good idea, which I agree with, but right now we need to tweak the implementation of it. And and the way that I would put it is, if you had, if you had a change of your job at home, or you took a pay cut, okay, and your income dropped by, you know, 50, 60 percent, or we'll just use 40 percent since that's the average cut sure, to state agencies. Sure. And your income dropped by 40 percent a month. That is probably not the time to start building your savings account, right? The time to start building your savings account, you know, like you you live at that 40 percent, you build up some credit card debt, you deplete your savings, like you got to get back on your feet before you can start putting half your income in savings. And so to me, this this bill, the House Bill 2763, is getting about a couple steps. It's getting a couple, a couple steps ahead of us. That's my take. Durant, Just a little bit is a little bit. And, and the idea here that, that Vlad is, is talking about is really an end run around two things. It's, it's an end run around the idea that we're probably not going to increase the gross production tax like states like, like Alaska, like North Dakota, like Texas. That, that have the allowed, tax at 10, 12, 14%. Right. That have allowed them to have a sort of a safety net here. It also lets the state kind of have a, an escape valve for certain times when we're not doing so well and when our major business is oil and gas. And we're never going to not be an oil and gas state. Uh, until it runs dry, we're going to be an oil and gas state. And so I think what he's saying here is that there are avenues that are not being talked about and that should be revisited because we have to do something to give ourselves some kind of cushion for those years when we're not doing so hot. 100%. So that's House Bill 2763. Uh, last article that we've got for you today is an article from the Journal Record. As we've referenced before, the Journal Record has a paywall. Um, I understand if you can't access it. I also, as I have before, heartily recommend that if you don't have a Journal Record subscription, 
you finish listening to the pod today and then go to their website and get a journal record subscription. Um, Support local media in any way you can. They need it. They're valuable. They need it. Yes. And we, and and we do, we have, we have so many great people um, doing great reporting here. We've got Grant at News 9. We've got Catherine Sweeney at the Journal Record. We have Brianna Bailey uh, at the Frontier in Tulsa. We have uh, Dale Denwalt, Ben Felder, Steve Lackermeyer at the Oklahoman. We have Grant. Who else? Um, I will I'll, Trace over at Nondoc. Yeah, Trace um, Savage at Nondoc. Um, I, I will include Justin Wingerter in that one for Absolutely. federal politics. Um, he's one of the few people here who do it uh, in, in the state. Um I'm trying to think of anybody. Trevor else. Brown at Oklahoma Watch. Well, I mean, um, then you have like the the, which Mount, are the the nonprofit kind yes. of investigative pieces. But there is well, many of the Mount Rushmores of of Oklahoma journalism here, which are Sean over at the AP yes. and Barbara at the Tulsa World, um, and Chris Castile over at News OK. Like the the real people who are the venerated folks here. That if you see their name on a story, you should stop what you're doing and read that story. hundred uh, percent agree. So um, this is from the Journal Record. This is by Catherine Sweeney. Um, this is talking about criminal justice reform. We are going to focus on criminal justice reform in a couple episodes, maybe next week, maybe the week after. Suffice it to say that this is looking at um, three bills that passed this week that the governor signed into law. Uh, first one is seven, Senate Bill 786. This changes the sentencing guidelines for bur- burglary and removes the mandatory minimum of two years for a second offense. That passed, and the governor signed it today. Senate Bill 649, which reduces enhanced sentences for repeated nonviolent felonies, particularly those involving controlled dangerous substances. That passed, and the governor signed it as well. And then lastly, Senate Bill 689. This lets felons who are serving life for nonviolent crimes reassess their sentence after 10 years. This passed. The governor signed it today as well. There was also Senate bill. It's one. So this there's a bill that passed the House earlier this week that the intent behind the legislation was to add mental at two persons. Oh, to the 1221. Senate bill 1221. 1221. Yeah. What the other one was. Yeah. yeah. So 1221. This is the intent of this bill is to add two persons to the parole board that have expertise in mental health and substance abuse treatment. Um, there was a floor amendment added that... Okay, this is you know Andy talks about those times when I temper yourself. Yeah, I'm not Andy. I don't have the ability I, to 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 rein in Scott. Right. For all you fixers, this could be full Melson. All you guys who listen every week, this is one of those times where I'm squinting my eyes and rubbing my forehead. Um, so there was a floor amendment added that was a, a request amendment by the District Attorneys Association that changed sentencing guidelines so that judges now have the ability to sentence juvenile offenders from 13 to 18 to life in prison without the possibility of parole. I'm not here to make a comment on, you know, whether that's good or bad. But I you guess. will. <laughs> but, but you will. I, I personally think it's a terrible idea um this amendment was the subject of pretty vigorous debate on the floor um an unlikely coalition of people debating against the amendment you had uh a representative scott edmund representative eric proctor representative emily virgin and then representative kevin calvey for edmund um all on the same side who is also an attorney i believe yes right he yes. is and it was interesting because you had a kind of a coalition of attorneys from both sides of the aisle saying that this was a terrible idea and then a coalition of non-attorneys from the other side of the aisle that seemed to think it was fine. As I've said before in the pod, I am not a lawyer. I think that generally speaking, in matters of the legal process and the law, you should listen to lawyers. But yeah, you should you definitely know. listen to those. People. They went to school for that, and it was very expensive, and they're they're usually pretty smart. So the one thing about this bill, though, it does require those juveniles to undergo a psychological exam to make sure that they're they're mentally fit. Uh, to be sentenced to a sentence like that. And then 
a judge also has to deem that they cannot be rehabilitated. Uh, so those are the two prongs of that there that could prevent a juvenile from going to prison for life without parole. Uh, for a lot of the people who are opposed this bill, that's not good enough. So, so, so to that I would say, and this is not, you know, this is not a legal argument, but if you're talking about like medic medicine, for instance, right? So in in psychiatry, there's a certain subset subset of disorders known as personality disorders. Um, by definition, it is widely accepted that you can't diagnose someone with a personality disorder until they're 18. So what we're saying in Oklahoma is you can't even determine what someone's personality is until they're 18. But at 13, you can make a decision that they're both mentally competent to be sentenced to life in prison without parole and that they're going to be, for whatever they did, that they will be unable to be rehabilitated. When it also gets to, to the ideology, and it was a clear split. If you watch the debate, and you can go back and watch it. It's still, it's still on the House uh, site that, like, a clear split between who believes what about the corrections system. Is it punishment or is it rehabilitation? And there's a clear split, and it's it's evident in this bill. Yeah, I mean you're 100 percent right. That's a that's a great point. And I'll, if we don't move on, I'm gonna just we should move we should it. move on. I'm gonna lose it and on. go off on this. But <laughs> now we had one other piece of kind of news this week, Grant, that you were wanting to talk about, and this involves another uh, nationally prominent Oklahoma. Yeah, let me flip through my my notes here. I still use actual paper because. Um, you hear that rustling of paper? Yeah, that's, a, that's a that's a newsman right is, there. That's what this is. Even that's though news- you can't read my handwriting, uh, it's it's atrocious. Uh, so uh, now former Congressman Jim Bridenstine, who is the uh, Oklahoma 1st District, that's up near Tulsa, he was confirmed to be the new head of NASA. It's a really long process for him, uh, a lot of opposition for a lot of different reasons, including things like his opposition to certain LGBTQ rights, uh, his comments uh, about climate change he falls into the same vein as as most uh republicans who are as right as he is uh in, in that climate change he never called it a hoax but he does not believe most of the the mainstream science which is backed up by 99 percent of scientists at this point does he also think that because it still snows in the winter in dc it means that climate change isn't real as far as i know there are no pictures with with jim bridenstine and snowballs uh but i have <laughs> I'm not going to, like, hang my hat on that one. Um, Spoken like a true reporter. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. Um, he he also would be the first partisan head of the agency without a science background. Uh, both of them. He's, there's never been a, a head of this agency that doesn't have a science background. And when we say science background, we don't mean, like, he, like, majored in, you know, life sciences. Okay? When we say science background, we mean, like doesn't have a doctorate in astrophysics. Right, right. And so there was a lot of concern, and uh, obviously it was along party lines, except for Senator Marco Rubio in Florida, which is an important vote because Cape Canaveral's in Florida, uh, who was not convinced that Bridenstine was going to be right for the agency because he was partisan and because he was going to bring an atmosphere of, of that partisanship. But Rubio, Rubio, he did. Yeah. He did. He changed his vote. I was getting there. He, he changed his vote on wait, the day of the conversation. Wait, 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 wait. Marco Rubio changed his position? Uh, strange, right? That's it's not, weird. Has that, has that ever happened before? I'm, I'm, I'm shocked. But the reason we're talking about this is uh, for a few reasons. And one of them is that Breitenstein's big push is he'd like to see a, a stronger public-private partnership 
when it comes to American space exploration, including a lunar colony. I like science fiction as much as the next person. We've been talking about this kind of thing for a long time, but have not really had a good plan about how that works. And the idea is that a lunar colony for uh, Americans, Earthlings, I don't know. I guess I don't know what that would be at that point. But I want to go on record and say that that is the first time the word Earthlings has been used on the pod, and it makes me happy. You're all welcome. Uh, but it'd be a refueling stop to go to Mars, which is what Vice President Mike Pence made a clear point in saying that we're going to go to Mars during his speech about Bridenstein during the confirmation. He also wants to mine the moon. He wants to mine the moon. There, there are influences of, of friendly faces to Bridenstein from oil and gas in Oklahoma. Uh, it's, it's an interesting concept. I don't know if there's anything on the moon to mine or drill for, but... Can we not just leave the moon alone? I mean, I just, you know, whatever. That's fine. He's a lunar enthusiast. You know, well, it's just, I just, you know, whatever. It's fine. But back here on Earth, his time in Tulsa was also under scrutiny while he was at the Air and Space Museum up there, specifically for an incident where he he was the, the, he ran that nonprofit up there. It's a nonprofit museum. Uh, There was an air show and he got a rocket racing league to be a part of the air show. And the rockets weren't vertical. They would go up and then go horizontal, but they were rocket-powered jets, essentially. So he used that money to get the Rocket League here. Turns out Bridenstine has a stake in the league. He's got a rocket with his name on it. Uh, and so that was troubling to some members of, of Congress when they learned about this report. Um, another instance of past behavior in getting future performance. He also managed to run the Tulsa Air and Space Museum at a deficit for what I believe is the first time in its history. Yes, in its history. And he's not going to be running an agency that's got an $18.5 billion budget and employs, I think it's 70,000 people. Um, I think that's probably larger than the NASA Air and Space Museum, the Tulsa Air and Space Museum. Just a little. I think it's just a little. And so now his seat's vacant. And from what I'm being told, I have not heard from the governor's office yet, and I haven't heard from the state election board yet, but the Tulsa County Election Board has said there is not going to be a special election to fill his seat until November because he resigned in an election year, and so they're just going to wait it out. So that means about 700,000-ish people, 711,000 I think is what it is, people yeah. in Oklahoma District 1, the first Oklahoma district, will not have a voice until November. Um, and it'll be on the radar of a lot of folks here and a lot of folks nationally because of what's been happening in 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 federal special elections and those seats being flipped from Republican to Democrat and what's been happening in Oklahoma politics because our eight special elections have shifted metrics left, have shifted them Democratic. Markedly. Yes. In some cases by close to 20 points or more. Right. And so in in a a recent 538.com poll, Oklahoma comes in second for swing shift from party to party. Still solidly Republican. Like for those of you out there who are who are Democrats and are, this is exciting for you hold on a second because it's not like Oklahoma is going to turn blue overnight but it is going to be a race to watch because of of those kinds of shifts beautiful well I think grant that that kind of wraps up our news roundup for the week so we're going to take a quick break and come back and walk through some of the other things that the legislature did this week and uh, we'll go on from there sounds good We'll be right back.
right, guys, we are back. So here comes your legislative recap for the week. Some of this is stuff we've touched on a little bit already. We'll get into a little bit more detail. The bulk of the discussion is going to focus on the uh, budget bill because that's the main uh, piece that we've seen discussed this week. But first up, we've got Senate Bill 888. So if you'll recall last week on our most recent episode, Andy and I were talking about how there was a supposed deal for a wind gross production tax that was going to hit uh, House floor on Monday. Like many deals in the Oklahoma legislature, this one fell apart for various and sundry reasons. No wind bill was heard Wednesday, uh, Monday. No wind bill was heard Tuesday. Uh, and then here comes Senate Bill 888 on Wednesday afternoon. Senate Bill 888 um, is a bill that had an amendment added on the Senate side. No, excuse me. An amendment added on the House side in committee that it caps the refundable wind tax credits so the short version you know this the argument from the folks that are sponsoring the bill and sponsoring the amendment is that the wind industry is taking advantage of oklahoma because in years when they don't actually owe any taxes they have no tax liability they have this refundable tax credit where the state actually writes them a check on average those checks are totaling seven on average those checks are totaling 70 million dollars a year um that Credits are set to sunset after the next eight years, but uh, proponents are saying that if we cap those tax credits now, this could save the state, you know, 700, 800. We've heard figures ranging from 700 million to over a billion today, money that this would save the state by capping these tax credits. Right. To be, to be safe, let's just go with $70 million a year. That's what it's at right now, and that's what we know the state's going to get capped. So $70 million a year, that's when it's going to save the state. For the next 10 years. So if you do extrapolate that, it's $700 million for the yeah. next 10 years. Is it 10 years this sunset or eight? It's 10 years. Okay. Um, it's it's interesting. And we talked about this earlier in, in the show here, but these rebates and this tax credits, whatever you want to call it, at the end of the day, they get money back uh, on their taxes. Uh, they're promised in 20-year contracts to these companies that have come here. And depending on how you feel about multinational corporations... Uh, you may not like that some of this money is leaving the country or leaving the state, but these businesses are here and the state has promised them these things. And you've, uh, we said earlier too, that like you, you'll hear from opponents of this that it's, it may not be a great idea to end up on Green Energy's blacklist. 100%. And one thing that I think is important for us to point out, because um, Andy and I have referenced those contracts on the pod before, and we have not been clear about this. The state of Oklahoma does not have a contract with any of these wind companies, okay? When we reference contracts, what we mean is that when these wind companies went to banks, okay, to get financing for the projects that have costs in the hundreds of millions or often billions of dollars, banks apply metrics to see if they will qualify for the loan. And one of the criteria that they use is where is like your income going to come from and what is the tax liability so written into these contracts when wind companies get their loan is the idea that they're getting this tax refundable tax credit from the state when that goes away okay it puts that financing in jeopardy it may mean that these companies are no longer able to meet the obligations of their loan now the question becomes if that happens if there's a lawsuit, are banks going to sue the wind companies? Those lawsuits were being drafted. Yeah. There's a reason that there's certain amendments were made to this bill. It was because lawsuits were being drafted 
and they were afraid of that, or at least the threat of lawsuits being right. drafted. Right. There's also a part of this, too, that, and I hadn't thought of this until just now, so I'm kind of riffing here. Um, I don't it's know. It's a podcast, dude. You it can is riff. a podcast. You can riff. Um, I don't know what this will do to Oklahoma's credit rating itself. Earlier this year, uh, late, which I just guess, went up for the first time. Which just went up for the like, first time. Right. Like right. Which is good news for Oklahoma, but we were given a negative credit last year, late last year, from Moody's. And to to alter agreements like this, uh, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Because Moody said that while a recent teacher pay bill and other uh, other uh, uh, revenue bills that we've passed have been a step in the right direction, they're still saying it's not enough. And so if we go back on our, our word, which is your credit, in some of these things, it'll be interesting to see what happens to state Yeah, you know, I hadn't thought of that. That's an interesting point because on the one hand, you would think because this means that this reduces the accounts payable for the state, right? So on the one hand, it means we have more money, so that should increase your credit rating. On the other hand, it means you're going back on your word on a business deal, which decreases your credit rating. So, you know, this this is a big deal. This passed the House yesterday, Senate Bill 888. It's got to go back to the Senate because this is an amendment. We have heard, you know, Grant, I've... I've talked to some folks and I've heard and I'm I you know certainly uh, you know only say what you can you only say what you can you're a reporter mm-hmm. you have to report got to protect your sources I have heard that this is dead on arrival in the Senate like that Senate may not even hear the bill however representative Cootie who carried the bill on the house floor said that the pro tem in the Senate has promised the bill will get a hearing that's interesting because procedurally the Senate pro tem is the only person who could bring this to the floor. Right. So I don't know. Can you? I've been hearing similar things that you've been hearing, but I'm not entirely convinced that that's what's actually going to happen. I believe it'll get a hearing. I think it depends on how afraid, it's like we were saying earlier, on how afraid of oil and gas they are looking ahead or looking at their campaign coffers. I don't actually know if there's going to be outside forces besides just the state revenue that are going to impact this and matter more to them than than putting $70 million a year back into state the state budget. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, traditionally, at least this session, uh, the Senate has been a little bit more hostile to this idea than the House. The reason that this provision was added as an amendment to the bill in the House is because they couldn't get that done at the Senate. So, you know, if the Senate pro tem decides to bring it to the floor... You know, I I honestly don't know if it passes. I mean, I, I just don't know. I don't um, either. So we'll see what happens with that. Next bill that we specifically wanted to discuss today is House Bill 1212. This is so-called, again, this was not originally the intent of a bill. This was the addition of an amendment. Uh, but an amendment was added to House Bill 1212. This happened yesterday as well. It was a long day if you like to watch debate on the House floor. Um, to uh, An amendment was added for constitutional carry. Uh, Grant, do you want to kind of explain? What yeah, con- so, so what constitutional, constitutional carry yeah, is? constitutional carry is the idea that in the Second Amendment, which gives Americans the right to bear and keep arms, firearms specifically, um, to people who interpret that law, uh, and that the way that we've interpreted it in general, constitutional carry is the idea that inside the Second Amendment is your right to carry a firearm on your person without government intervention in a permit process, in a training process, and depending on who you talk to, a background check process. Uh, and uh, if this passes, which Oklahoma's a very pro-gun state. It did. It passed the House. Yeah. Um, and so 
now this this gets through and you can if you're over 21 without a felony you can buy a gun and just carry it without having a permit whenever you want and wherever you want now proponents of the bill to be fair i guess (laughs) um proponents of the bill were adamant this does not allow you to carry a gun any place that you cannot carry a gun already. Okay. So if I am a private business owner and I don't allow firearms on my property and I have it posted that firearms cannot be carried concealed or otherwise on my property, that is my legal right as a private business owner and owning my private property. What this bill does is if you want to go to a federally licensed gun dealer and purchase a firearm and carry it on your person at all times, You can do that without buying a gun license, without going to any training, without getting a permit, without paying any sort of fee. It says it is your constitutional right to buy a gun and carry it with you wherever you want to, as long as the owner of the property onto which you are, you know, going doesn't restrict that. Right. And so there, the proponents of this, of this bill are people that believe all the same things, the, the good guys with the guns and the bad guys with the gun, all of those those things that become now cliche. But there are serious concerns from law enforcement agencies about this bill. Um, I did a story this morning. So this is Thursday morning for us. Um, so when when does this come out? Next week, Scott? Tomorrow? Uh, tomorrow, probably. Tomorrow, tomorrow maybe so, Saturday morning. Saturday morning. Okay, so, so it, it'll be a couple days past when you're listening to this podcast. But the Oklahoma City Chamber of Commerce had said don't vote for this bill. It sent a letter to its members telling their lawmakers not to vote for this bill out of concerns for businesses, that it'll strip the rights of certain business and property owners and their ability to prevent people from carrying guns in their buildings and and having and knowing who is carrying when. Um, and, and it also potentially could impact, like, the, the NCAA tournament, basketball tournaments. Exactly. They, they don't want to come to – they don't want to come – to states and cities that have constitutional carry, right? Golf tournaments don't want to come to places that have constitutional carry. Um, like It makes mu- hosting large events right. a lot harder. Music festivals, conventions, like the list the list of places goes on and on and on. Someone asked the question of Representative Cootie, why do you feel like why do you feel like gun owners don't need any sort of training to be able to carry a weapon? And Representative Cootie, this was the answer that he had when he wrote his original bill. So Representative Cootie had a bill that would do this same, uh, do this same thing. That bill was not heard, so he offered it as a floor amendment. Um, Representative Cootie's answer was, "Okay, it's not that people don't need training, but any responsible gun owner." It's going to get more training than the law currently requires, which may or may not be true. But to have a state law that requires training is generally seen by most gun trainers, people who train you to fire, yeah. use firearms. A mandated training is is always best. Well, and the other thing is, the question was asked. The question was asked on the floor, and I watched the whole debate. There's nothing in this bill that says it only applies to responsible gun owners, right? Like, there's the the idea that the other thing Representative Cudi said is. Well, there's no amount of training that government could mandate that would be sufficient, so government shouldn't mandate any. I just, I feel like that's a circular argument, and it really, you know, 
it really bothers me. The other thing that this is just a point that I found entertaining. The other thing I found entertaining about the debate on this is someone asked Representative Cootie, okay, well, um, you have to pay to get an ID to vote. So why shouldn't you have to pay to get a permit to get a gun? Representative Cootie said, well, first he thought that the IDs that you need to vote are free. They're not. And two, he said, I don't see anything about voting in the Bill of Rights. To which Representative Stone, who asked the question, said, and I will echo, the, the bit in the Constitution about voting comes before the Bill of Rights. There's like a whole like couple of pages of the Constitution that actually happened before the Bill of Rights, and that's the bit that talks about the voting. So It was a stark uh, answer of, that, that made Representative Cootie, and I, I don't know his, his history with, with constitutional law, but it was a, a, a startling answer. I'll say. I think that that is probably the best way to characterize it. Yeah. So that's constitutional carry. Oh, I want to say one more thing about sure. the constitutional carry bill. So the, um, the the reason that I looked at this bill is not because, and I think I'll, I'll loop you in here, Scott, too, that like the reason we talk about this bill is not that we're anti-gun or anything like that. It's more so that this isn't one of those things that the state will do that will drive away business and it's once again ignoring the call of people who try to recruit businesses into this state yep and businesses say the quality of life in your state is not good enough for our employees we don't feel comfortable bringing our business there it's what happened when people kept saying that if we raise taxes it'll drive away business the oklahoma city chamber of commerce said you know that's not the case there it's actually the last thing this is also in that vein and these people aren't liberals these people aren't aren't tax and spend yeah. Democrats. The, this Oklahoma, is... the Oklahoma City Chamber can be described as many things. Liberal is not one right. of them. Right, right. So when they talk about these things, they're the people you listen to. And for them to say something like this could drive away business and revenue from the state, we should listen. Well, and, and I think that's, that's a great point, Grant. And the other thing to emphasize here is this is not theoretical, okay? Representative Cindy Munson, she had on her Twitter feed this afternoon, like... Like, there are real businesses who want to come to Oklahoma and don't because of laws like this. When Representative Munson put this on her Twister, on her, her Twister? Her Twister? On her her Twitter. That's a different app, I think. uh, Right? Uh, When she put this on her Twitter, she was specifically referencing a Senate Bill 1140, which also passed the House today. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Senate, Senate Bill 1140 is a bill that says that agencies who are child-placing agencies, um, so that means that they are placing children into foster and adoptive homes. Uh, Senate Bill 1140 says that child-placing agencies can opt not to place children into homes that violate that particular agency's written uh, religious and or moral beliefs. An, an easy way to translate that is if I own a child placing agency and I believe that marriage uh, is uh, biblically, according to the Bible, should only be between a man and a woman, I can choose not to place a child in a family that has two parents of the same sex. The bill is, in my opinion, designed to allow child placing agencies to discriminate based on religious and or moral convictions, families into which they'll place children. The bill passed the House today. 
Um, it's largely going to be, I won't say ineffective, but Representative Leslie Osborne, Republican from Mustang, running for labor commissioner, a friend of the pod. Um, Representative Osborne added an amendment in committee that says any agency that accepts federal funds, which is like all of them, um, can't use this provision. So it kind of guts it. How does AJ Griffin but, feel about Senator AJ Griffin, who her, she's not running yeah. again in November, but one of her, um, one of her legacy pushes, I'll say, for her, her time in the legislature has been the pinnacle plan for foster parents. Right. What has she said about this? I haven't seen anything. So Senator Griffin in the Senate, uh, when the bill originated in the Senate, Senator Griffin argued against it on the floor for sure. I believe she argued against it in committee. She voted against it in both places. Um, so I, th- I I haven't spoken with AJ, but I think I could characterize her. I, I don't think it would be inappropriate for me to characterize her position as being against this. Okay. But, um, you know, the bill is largely gutted. It passed the House today. But Representative Munson's point is, like, there have been hundreds of millions of dollars of potential business investment in Oklahoma that are staying out because of this law and laws like it. And I would venture to guess some a company like Amazon, which Oklahoma was in the running for their second headquarters, the, the, these things matter to them. Yeah. yeah. And especially uh, companies from the coasts where they tend to be a little more liberal than right. we are here. Right. Only, only a little more. Uh that I, I though these kind of things affect that kind of business, 100%. and then people can reasonable people can disagree about if that's the kind of business you want in Oklahoma, but the fact of the matter is it that people who recruit businesses here are saying that bills like twelve twelve, and and this adoption bill, uh, are driving away business. I yeah I totally agree. All right, last bill on our legislative recap for this week is Senate Bill 1600, just like the address of the White House. So uh, Senate Bill 1600. Do you think they did that on purpose? Do you think that that was a clever? I don't think they think that far ahead. That's too bad. Okay. Uh, uh, Man, it wouldn't be (laughs) awesome. Like, keep it. Uh, Senate Bill 1600, this is the budget bill. This is the general appropriations bill for fiscal year 2019. Uh the big number, drum roll please, $7.545 billion. Right, there it is. There's the symbol. Um, this is an increase of $725 million over the current fiscal year. Um, there are no agency cuts other than the Department of Commerce, except not really. That's not really a cut. Um, and a 19.6% increase to the Department of Education budget. Um, also increases for DHS and mental health. You know, I think one question, and this is I'm this is a leading question, I'll admit, because our next segment we're going to get into this in detail with some reporting that Grant has done. Does this really increase funding? Okay, the party line, and when I say the party line, I literally mean the party line from the majority in both houses has been this budget is a huge success because it's an increase of, you know, about nine and a half, ten percent across the board from the last fiscal year. Um, however, there are some people, Representative Eric Proctor of Tulsa, would say that no, this actually does not increase funding. The debate we saw this week in the Senate was that from the Dems was no, this doesn't increase funding nearly enough. Um, even Senator Kim David, who is the Republican chair of the Senate Appropriations and Budget Committee, her debate on the floor was like, yeah, this increases funding-ish, meaning that... Ish. Yeah. Like, it is a bigger pot of money than last year. 
However, it does not get us anywhere near 2009 budget levels. And Oklahoma Policy actually has a good graph of this, which is nice that it's not a graph. You don't have to read the entire thing. Indeed. But that that where we are versus the current levels of what we should be at based on 2005 to the nine levels, we're quite a bit lower than, right. than what, where we would expect to be at given what you would want for an increase in spending and, and budgetary apportionment. Right, exactly. So um, that's kind of the that's kind of the short story on the Senate bill, uh, on the budget bill is like, yeah, it increases funding kind of. Um, one thing, you know, listening to debate on, about this in the Senate yesterday um, on the floor and then honestly in Senate JCAB to uh, the Senate Joint Committee on Appropriations and, Appropriation and Budget. Why won't the step up plan just die? Like, why won't it go away? It was just, inc- I felt like every answer, every answer that was, every answer to every question that was proffered in committee or on the floor, well, don't we need more funding for this? And don't we need more funding for that? And don't we, doesn't this agency deserve more money? And the answer was always, well, well, Senator, you didn't vote for Step Up. If you had voted for Step Up, there'd be more money. So stop your complaining. The answer to that question is, is twofold. There's a an actual answer, and then there's a more craven answer to that question. And so the actual answer is it keeps coming up because it was the plan. It was the plan that they had brokered with bipartisanship and business and the governor, for the most part, everybody involved. They weren't super thrilled with all pieces, but it had been brokered and then failed on the back of State Question 640, really. The craven answer is that the folks that are saying, well, you if you had voted for Step Up, like I did, that's a dog whistle to donors who are who backed Step Up. Right. You're 100%. And I mean, the bill passed the Senate. The appropriations bill passed the Senate, largely along party lines. And you could basically summarize the argument down to Democrats standing up and saying, okay, yeah, this is more money, but it's not nearly enough. Shouldn't we be finding more money? And Republicans saying, well, if you really wanted more money, you should have voted for Step Up. Right. And that's I want to make a disclaimer here. Uh, the CEO of Griffin Communications, which owns News 9, David Griffin, was a part of the Step Up plan. I have to, I have to say that as as an ethical journalist so that's that's kind of where we're at in the budget uh the budget passed house or passed senate jcab passed off the floor on the senate yesterday uh it will be eligible to be heard on the floor of the house tomorrow where it will be heard and is largely expected to pass though we will be subject to i'm sure uh at least an hour if not several hours of uh spirited questioning and debate on the measure i can't wait that is going to be our legislative recap for this week we're going to take a quick break and we will be back and grant is going to take us through a discussion of some reporting that he has done that that i think is really interesting that looks at the question essentially of what does it mean to fully fund an agency and if we fully funded government agencies in oklahoma what does that like what would that look like stick around it's really interesting especially the perspective from the department heads about what they want and what their employees want. Awesome. So fixers stay with us and we'll be right back. And we are back. So this is our probably our last segment for this week. Um, you got this idea to approach 
agency heads. Call up agency heads. And there are something like 65, right? 65. There are 65 government agencies in Oklahoma that are funded by the appropriations process. Now, this is this is I'm not going to get too far into this because it's really a discussion for a whole other pod. But when we talk about the Oklahoma budget, there is what is called off the top funds. And then there are appropriated funds. So off the top funds is money that basically is like it comes into the treasury, but then the legislature does not have any say over where it goes. We have to spend that money. Right. And we have to spend it in a certain way. Like it is legally, it's already set in stone. This dollar goes to like this dollar gets split into this many parts and those parts are distributed in this way to these agencies. Okay. That money, the off the top money, is not what we're talking about necessarily. We're talking about money that's appropriated by the legislature. Right. We're right? talking about the, the 7.5, 5, 7.4 billion. 5.4 billion coming from right. GR, general revenue, that right. the legislature appropriated. Right. Grant got this idea. He was like, I'm going to ask all 65 of these agencies, I'm going to call the agency directors and say, what do you need to, one, fully staff your agency? Okay, so you have no openings. Two, you're running at maximum efficiency. And three, you're delivering all the services that you are legally, either by statute or the Oklahoma Constitution, obligated to provide our citizens. Right. And so this is this. There are no new programs in what I'm asking them to talk about. There are always things department heads would like to add to their their you know departments. Um, but you know, this is would it bring your IT in line with where we should be in 2018? That includes things like the Department of Public Safety and getting everything in line for the Real ID Act because that's going to cost them money, but will be a new improvement to the department. That's things like new prisons that Corrections wants. But you're um, not including any of those things. I'm including those things. Oh, you are including those in things. some okay. of those things, but like you're not allowed under this question to start a new program that hadn't existed before. So you're not allowed to dream. You're not allowed to invest. You're not allowed to say, wouldn't it be cool if we did X, Y, and Z? All you're allowed to do is say, if we were doing everything that we're already mandated to do at the best of our ability, it would cost this much money. Exactly. So that's the question that you asked. You called 65 department heads. How many did you hear back from? I've heard back from five so far with actual numbers. Others have gotten back to me and have asked for some time. To get this, this piece isn't going to be out this week. It may or may not be out next week by the time the budget is finalized. It just depends on how soon I can get these numbers. Frankly, it's kind of been like trying to herd cats with a pack of dogs. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so well, I just, I'm, I'm going to kind of step back now, and I want you to just kind of take us through what you've found out, right? And what you, what kind of what you think it means. I will do that happily. And so the, the places I've, found, I've heard back from so far have been five of the 65 agencies. That is the Department of Ed. Uh, Department of Human Services, the Department of Corrections, uh, ODOT, the Department of Transportation, and ABLE, uh, which is funny because their budgets vary wide, wildly. Um, so Common Ed, $2.9 billion, that's their ask this year. That's what they're saying is their, or the Department of Ed, rather. That's, the $2.9 billion is what they're asking this year, and that's what they say is their fully funded WISH budget. Um, Department of Human Services comes in at $729 million. Uh, Corrections, which was kind of the first and the real the reason that I, I started this because uh, Director Joe Albaugh knows he's not going to get the $1.5 billion he's asking for, but is making a point to keep asking for that kind of number because that's what it'll take to fix corrections in Oklahoma. 
Um, I'm going to move my papers again here. To fix corrections in Oklahoma, but still without making any new investment. Exactly. No new programmings on rehabilitation. No new, like, just to kind of get us to baseline offering programs and services that they already do. Correct. Correct. And the last one is the ABLE Commission, which is the Alcoholic Beverage Commission in the state here. They want $3 million. Like I said, these things vary. Uh, So that, all those added together, come to six point four billion dollars and i have 60 other agencies to hear back from meaning we're easily gonna go over what the current appropriated budget is for the state of oklahoma um i also want to make this really clear that department heads and folks i've been talking to are not unappreciative of the work that happens at the legislature they know that there's only so much money the pie is only so big and they only get a sliver of each you know of each pie each year and a lot of them it's hard for them to just understand what I'm asking because one, they're afraid that they're gonna gonna get dinged by legislators by their answers to in this story, even though it's kind of a hypothetical story that I'm just pitting against reality. Two, it's I had one of the department heads describe it to me like it's hard for me to answer this question because it's like asking for your monthly budget if you made a million dollars a year. Right. You know, it's it's so interesting to me because when you, you know, the other day when you and I were talking about this um, story, you talked to one department head who said, like, I want to I want to answer that, but I can't. Like, I have hundreds of vacancy, vacancies in my department that I'm holding open because we need cash flexibility. And I don't have that. And the only way I have that cash flexibility is to budget for positions and then not hire people to fill them so that we have enough cash to operate these other, like, kind of emergency almost. Like, is that accurate? Right? That's like, right. On top of cuts they've already taken. So right. that, that agency is really down close to 2,000 people here. Uh, and they're keeping 800 to 900 positions vacant. Which is just... Which is astonishing. And right. to like p- to put this in context, I, I think in percentages, I think percentages, you know, depending on the situation can be really helpful. So you said this is $6.4 billion, right? Right. $6.4 billion from five agencies, no new investment, just to kind of bring them up to code, for lack of a better word. That's 85% of fiscal year 19 total appropriations across the state and there's 60 agencies he hasn't even heard from yet i mean that by the way i think scott's brain might melt out of his ears here in a minute but like like, those agencies i haven't heard from are things like the department of public safety which are our highway patrol which are the dmv which are some of the bigger areas the department of mental health which we know has been underfunded yes that's the health department that's the tax commission that's that's the Office of Management Enterprise Services that we talked about before. That's the OSBI, the Bureau of State Investigations, which investigates state-level crimes. So there's, which has been now consolidated with the Oklahoma Bureau of Narcotics, and so th- that budget will increase in itself. My but, mind is boggling. So we're we're easily going to be way beyond what the state can appropriate right now, and I'm going to get texts and emails and calls from people who are like, "So then, what's your plan?" It's not my job to have a plan. 
It's just my job to lay out the reality of what's what's happening here is that our state our state agencies know that they're not going to get the funding they need and have been doing the best that they can for the last near decade now with what they're being given. Uh, and it's interesting, and we talked about this the other day too, that that there are, there are metrics to look at this by. I think the most valuable is to look at it, your state budget per capita, because different states have different populations and money. I 100% agree. Oklahoma is spending somewhere, depending on what year you're looking at, $1,200 to $1,700 a person. And since you brought Minnesota up earlier, Minnesota spends $12,000 a person, roughly, a year. This conversation is really about, are we willing to do what it takes to fund a state at the levels that it should be funded? Or do we think, like the new group run by Senator Tom Coburn, thinks that there's a lot of waste and fraud in the government and we can find it there? And those are ideological differences. But the people who run these agencies are no slouches. They are not partisan hacks most of the time. Um, I can't say that for everybody in the list. I don't know all of them personally. But most of the time, they just want to do their jobs to the best of their ability and do the services that they were put in those agencies to do. And so it's so far, and the, there are conversations that I've had with these people that they don't want me to report certain numbers quite yet. Sure. Uh, but those conversations have still been stark about what they think they need, just on the back of the envelope numbers. Yeah, you know, and I think that this kind of, if we're going to say, like, what is this, like, what does this boil down to, or, like, what is the main idea, you know, I think that this, I think that this kind of echoes the, the idea that we have been systematically under-investing in our state for years if not decades and that has consequences right like you know everyone everyone wants great roads and great bridges and great schools and great government but no one wants to pay for that but eventually you have to start paying for it and the longer you go the more expensive that it gets, right? Like the more you cut, the more ground you have to make up later. Like, well, that's math, right? Like, I mean, but which is not the strong suit for many of our. It's not my strong leaders. suit either. Uh, <laughs> you know, so I th- I think this you know I think this idea that you had, um, I think this was a great project. I'm I'm excited to hear kind of where. It continues to go. Um, I absolutely want you to come back and keep us kind of like informed on what you're hearing about what our agency heads are, what they need to really operate well. And in fact, I'll even I'll even throw this out there now. As you're kind of working through this and hearing back from people, if if any of them want a platform to come on and 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 talk about like, hey, here's what we would need this money for. Um, we have two microphones right here that we're not using right now. So uh, th- they're welcome with us anytime. And if you lead an agency and you're listening to this, call me back. <laughs> Just It's in your email. Just drop a dime. Give me a ring. Uh, I will say that that some of the the cuts that we've made have been due to 
to downturns in oil and gas. And there's no ignoring that. Sure. And a lot of folks will read this piece whenever I get it done or, or hear this piece whenever I get it done. And and that that's a, a valid critique of the state budget. It is This is just a look at what we, according to the people who run these agencies, what they think they need to be at full capacity doing the services that they have been hired and are paid to do. No, I mean, 100%. And the other thing is, this is also not like a an excuse for waste, right? Like, oh, that if you just like throw money at the problem, you know, automatically things get better. Like if, it, if an agency is not providing services well, that, okay, that automatically means that they need more money. Also... That's, that's that's not what that's not what I'm trying to say, and that's not no, what you're trying to say. No, and also a thing that I, I hear frequently from department heads is they are actively looking for ways to decrease waste and and bloat in their agencies and inefficiencies in their agencies because they too would like to be good stewards of taxpayer money. They didn't get here to waste money. By and large, the folks I've been talking to. Uh, believe that i have not actually heard anything from those people yet that i've not heard from someone saying i just take their money and do whatever i want with it there's right. there's mismanagement there is that we right. saw that this year with the department of health and the department of tourism earlier this year i i'm waiting to hear back from uh senator coburn's group oklahoma taxpayers unite they think there's 660 million dollars in waste fraud and abuse and bloat in oklahoma government i have not heard back from them about what that plan is and where those numbers are, if that's the case, I'd like to know. But what I'm understanding from people here is that they and their employees feel unfairly maligned by conversations like that, because that's not why they go to work, and it's not how they do their jobs. Right. Well, so what's your, Grant, as we're kind of winding down here, what's what's your takeaway from all from all of this? Where's where would you, what what parting thoughts do you have our have for our, our listeners this week? It's been an interesting year to to follow this from both a, a journalistic aspect and from someone who, for all intents and purposes, has adopted Oklahoma as his home state at this point. Um, it's been a really big year for people who have not normally been involved in Oklahoma politics, and a lack of involvement has gotten us to where we are now, which is a lot of dissatisfaction. It's exciting to watch what's going to happen going forward because those people are involved. And whether or not Oklahoma is going to change radically or change a little bit or just enough, I don't know, but it'll be exciting to watch that happen. No, I totally agree. I totally agree. And, you know, I think you're right. I mean, trying trying to get people to engage with government at you know a higher level than they do currently. I mean, that's what we're all about here, right? That's that's what that's what that's why let's fix this exists. Um, that's happening now. I think certainly we saw that happen during the teacher walkout. Um, I hope that it continues to happen. I think that if it continues to happen, and this is not intended to be a partisan statement at all, you know, because t- you know talking with um, talking with folks that were at the teacher walkout it was not a plurality of democrats by any means right like by any means i don't think um i don't think you can lump that group into one basket or the other um i think that people are starting to pay attention um and i think that's really exciting and i think that more people paying attention 
only means good things for us. It can only mean good forward. things. It can only mean good things. Yeah. The more informed you are, the more engaged you are, the better and more responsive government is going to be to you. Yeah, 100%. That's 100%. It. Well, that's probably about time for us to wrap it up for this week. I want to give uh, several thanks. Um, first, I want to thank everyone who came out to our Capitol Day today and met Andy at the Capitol. I was not able to be there, unfortunately. Uh, but thank you to Representative Dunnington and Representative Munson who came and spoke to our group. And uh, if you were at the Capitol today and went and spoke with your representative, good for you. If it was the if, if, if you're an old hat at this and you do that all the time, uh, thank you. We need more people like you. If this was your first time, congratulations and thanks for thanks for coming. Next, I want to say thank you to everyone who came out to our advocacy sessions. So Andy and I did a couple of advocacy trainings, walk out to what's next on Sunday and Monday earlier this week. Did one here in Oklahoma City, one in Edmond. We had about 60 people at both of those. That was a lot of fun, a lot of, excite- uh, a lot of exciting uh, comments, a lot of really engaged um, people that came and had some great kind of reflections on the walkout and great questions about what happens next and uh, it was a lot of fun i think for both of us Uh, i think that we're going to be doing some more of those in the future stay tuned and we'll let you know when and where that's going to happen we hope you can join us uh and last but certainly not least um my sincere thanks to grant herms from news nine for being on the pod today uh serving as uh, my partner in crime that andy was not able to join us we look forward to having him back on the show with us um, just as a regular contributor, but also to keep us informed about uh, what he's hearing from department heads of state agencies about where, you know, where they, f- where they feel like we should be as a state. It was my pleasure being job. here today. Really, I mean, Scott, it really was. I, I don't know if I, I did enough to uh, make up for the, the absence of Andy, but it was a pleasure being here. Oh, man, it was great. It was a good time. Great great conversation, uh, as always. And um, like I said, we look forward to uh, look forward to having you back. Uh, for anyone who doesn't already uh, follow Grant on Twitter, you absolutely should. Grant, you are at Grant Herms, KWTV on Twitter. Um, he is, you know, we throw out several of our must-follows if you're wanting to know what's happening at the Capitol. And uh, Grant is definitely one of those. Yeah, also follow on Instagram. Uh, that one's Grant Herms TV. And then Facebook as well. All of my stuff just goes kind of everywhere uh, because I don't sleep some days. Because you're a millennial. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) All right, guys. That's going to wrap it up for this week. So that brings us to the end of the episode. Remember that you can connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Let's Fix This OK. Uh, I, Scott, am at SC Melson. And Andy is at Andy OKC. You can also like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash letsfixthisok. Our website is letsfixthisok.org, and there you can sign up for our newsletter, read our blog, find resources and details about upcoming events. Our podcast is edited and produced by Andy and me, and Let's Pod This is a member of the Mostly Harmless Media Network. Our theme music is provided by the Sugar Free All-Stars. Let's Fix This is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization who strives to educate and equip all Oklahomans to engage with their government. We encourage you to get involved in any way that you can. And remember, decisions are made by those who show up.